The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. I'm your guest host today, John McAndrew, and... uh, Today's guest is Ed Storty, and uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. Ed, of course, is the Ed Storty of the Storty Model of Intervention, and Ed has been doing this for for many, many years, and he's going to talk to us about different models of intervention, the risks, the pros and the cons, why people want to intervene and need to intervene, but maybe should or should not, and we're going to talk about that process, and we're going to also talk about what it used to be like back in the 60s and what it's like today, and I want to tell you a little bit about Ed, so if you don't know him, uh, you will. He's an author. He has two books. He's a lecturer. He's an intervention specialist. He's obviously the author of the Storty Model and has trained hundreds and hundreds of interventionists over the years. He's on several boards. Uh, he's choreographed probably 4,000 motivational interventions throughout the world. He lectures. Uh, he teaches. He does so much. He's really the grandpapa of the intervention process. And, Ed, we want to welcome you to the show. Thanks, John. It's good to good to be on, and I just love the grandpapa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you'd like that. Ed, you know, I... Um, I think one of the first questions that we would all like to know, and we have all sorts of listeners on this show, people that are in the field, uh, people that are curious, obviously people that need help, families and individuals, and we hope that they learn a lot about the intervention process today. But could you tell us a little bit about who Ed Storty is and how how is it that you got into this field, and I'm sure, like many people we talk to in this field, it's not something you planned out, you know, for <laughs> to happen to your life. So how 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 was your path? Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's uh, that's an hour uh, that's an hour program there. But kind of quickly going through it, I was a longshoreman uh, in 1963, and. Um, you know, from there, always looking for, uh, gee, maybe other than working on the docks all my life, um, gee, I wonder if I could ever have a, a, another mission in life. As I had a severe accident on the waterfront, um, I did have a couple of surgeries, and then I remember being in a sociology class going to a junior college as I was going through the the disability, and uh, a woman did get up and say that she was a recovering alcoholic, 
and that she had five years of recovery, and that if anyone ever wanted to ask her any questions uh, about it, uh, they they could. Uh, and I looked at her in class thinking, wow, she doesn't look alcoholic, or she uh-huh. doesn't, you know, seem alcoholic. And I said, God, she's really pretty. I can't imagine it. Uh, but a couple of years later, uh, in 1975, uh, when I uh, then... Uh, um, you know, said to my wife, there's something wrong here. I need to do something based off my drinking. I remembered that woman, and I never did know her name or never, you know, talked to her. But she was an example of dignity, and I just thought, well, maybe I have the same thing. And I then did seek counsel. I went and received help. I volunteered for one year at Long Beach Memorial Medical Center in the addictive disease uh, unit, they actually called it the alcohol unit, right? Not alcoholism, alcohol unit. And um, I left the waterfront on disability. I did get out, and uh, I wanted so so to work at Long Beach Memorial, but they said you needed more recovery time. And uh, San Pedro Peninsula Hospital uh, accepted my resume, and I started as a neophyte counselor, uh, and I started my career that way. What year was that when you started the counseling? Uh, 1975. 1975. And you said you had an accident. Can you share with us? Yes. Yeah, I was working nights on the waterfront and uh, going to school days. And, of course, I was drinking at that time. And uh, that particular night, I was down in the hold of a ship, a Japanese ship, and we were taking out rebarbed steel. And they were one-ton bundles. And we had three or four of them uh, slung up to, uh, you know, get out of the hold of the ship. Again, we're down 80 feet maybe in that ship. And uh, as, I, as we picked up to go ahead and re-sling it, I was too close to that load, and one of the bundles nipped me in the head and threw me under the load that we were picking up, and oh. it crushed my knee and uh, tore ligaments. And they couldn't lower the load because uh, my head was underneath it, which, I, you know, I still, after many years, I still, I still, you know, lean my head to the left or right to get out of the way when I think of it. But I couldn't get out of there. And Japanese uh, crewmen came down and barred the, um, uh, uh, the load off of my knee and leg. And then they took me out in a land crane to get me to the hospital. Oh, my goodness. I guess... When you look at your life in the rearview mirror, that's a moment that could have gone a different... Oh, God, crushed, totally Great. smithered, smithered, just, you know, that I would have never made it out of there, just totally, and boy, uh, then I knew when they were taking me out of that ship, I kept thinking, you know, I, I hope I never, never return again, and to this day, uh, the view from my home is one of the ships going by and whatever, and to this day... I will look at these ships going, God, can you believe I don't work on them any longer? How fortunate that I don't have that danger in my life. Oh, my goodness. And so this this particular woman you were talking about, and you used a term which I think I have a feeling we may hear again in our discussion today about being an example of dignity and I've heard people over the years uh, talk about you, Ed, and your interventions and motivational interventions and that process and how people feel when you come into the room. But that 
that woman who you saw and that example of dignity, that must have left a lasting impression on you, didn't it? Yes, it did, yeah. And, of course, you know, uh, uh, always in that era of time of... um, of the anonymous groups, the twelve step programs, you know people would be there in their uh, when they were presenting uh, uh, you know their uh, their faith and trust and and story, they would be really talking you know at levels of their life, but they'd always be suited up, they would look good, they would dress for the occasion, and I just always thought, God, you know I mean if you're going to be a role model then then hopefully you look as that role model, and you can appreciate. Uh, that as others keep giving and they give from their soul and their uh, and their mind and, and 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 talk the talk that they do what they can, but they also uh, walk it and talk it. Right, and and this is 1975. Yes. am I correct yes. in that area? Yes. What were the stigmas like? Now today it's 2012, and we yeah. know there is stigma around alcohol, drug addiction, mental health issues. There are stigmas that are very high walls to get over. And and what was it like for you uh, in 1975? And was that a part of your uh, your motivation and how you did interventions? Well, it's a very good point. I mean, on one level, John, I think that you know I was blessed because I did start immediately um, when I was interning at Long Beach Memorial Medical Center, and then when I got involved with San Pedro Peninsula Hospital, um, these were acute hospitals. And so people, you know, they would be dressed in white gowns, and, you know, they'd have yellow stains from their food dropping, you know, on them to mm-hmm. distended stomachs to just, uh, you know, uh, just looking so bad. And I'd be thinking, my God, I just... I mean, the illness is beyond what it does to people, the the tremors and the shakes. And uh, when they would detox people, if you were acting out, you were put in five-point restraints. And uh, the fear of being thrown into a seclusion room because you're now in DTs because of just really acting out uh, delirium tremors. So uh, it really planted a seed of fear. And I think the public would see it more uh, of psychiatric issue then. Uh, but quite frankly, I'm still in awe that in this era of time, there are people that will see it as weakness or there will be people that will see it as um, it's not that bad uh, or he has a lot of other psychological issues and not accepting it as an illness of its own, alcoholism, drug dependency of, of an illness as, as its own, the primary illness. Um, so, you know, uh, many times in intervention work, it's not so much that we can't intervene, it's that family and friends are so protective not to do much about it. Right. That experience for you, uh, you know, and I can only imagine, although I have seen documentaries and films of that, but back in those days, um, you know, my uncle's crazy and we put him in the nut house. And of course, I've heard that in my family. Mm-hmm. And he, what he was, was an alcoholic. That's right. And and not long ago, people died in hospitals from DTs. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a tendency to hide this, although we were aware of the disease concept, weren't we? And um, 
but the stigma was very, very powerful. And 1975 isn't that long ago, I don't really think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, um, even today, I mean, people can call and almost whisper, I think my, my son might have an alcohol drug problem. And, uh, you know, keep it hush-hush. And yet, you know, I mean, you and I know that, I mean, all you have to do is travel on a plane. The person next to you asks you, what do you do for a living? If you mention I'm in the field of addictive disease, they'll go, well, you know, my mom was alcoholic. My dad was, my brother yeah. was, or my grandmother died from it. And it just surrounds us in our, uh, in our uh, communities continuously and, of course, it's so uh, uh, profound today with the Internet and all the things that you can do sure. that the addiction is just uh, explosive. Yeah. We're talking with Ed Storty, uh, the author of the Storty Model of Intervention, and we've kind of covered where he's come from. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I think we're going to talk to Ed about his uh, journey out into the world uh, starting to do interventions. This is one hour at a time. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. I'm your guest host today, John McAndrew. We've been talking to Ed Storty, and he's the author of the Storty Model of Intervention. And uh, Ed has a a long, long history of uh, this field of alcohol and drug addiction and intervention. And we've been talking about his journey into it in Long Beach in the early 1970s. And, And we'll just kind of pick up, Ed, where... Uh, you were beginning to get your training, and this journey starts to begin, uh, and really your passion in life. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, it really, you know, really started with um, uh, a case I went on with a man by the name of Jim Fulton, and I was at San Peter Peninsula Hospital, and it was for an airline pilot. And uh, he said, Ed, would you like to come uh, with me for an, uh, do an intervention? 
and I didn't. I, I thought that was an exorcism. I mean, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I went with him, and we went to this uh, corporate office, and we sat down, and with management presented to this airline pilot, and. He said, well, what options do I have? Of course, I'll go. And I thought, wow, can you believe it? So maybe it was about two weeks later, uh, a um, gentleman comes up to me and he says, uh, my daughter is 24 years of age. She will not go get help. She is alcoholic. She will die in the home. And I said, well, she really has to come to us. Um, or, you know, I mean, we go to some businesses, but we don't go to homes. He started crying, and he said, you just have to do something. So I went to my colleagues, and I presented to them um, what I was thinking. They said, no, don't do it. You're giving, you're empowering her. And I, right. I just felt stuck, you know, and I went back to him. He just said, if you don't come over, I don't know what I'm going to do. So ultimately, I did show up on a Sunday night, 8 p.m., knocked on the door, and uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, show up. He said that... Uh, if he he came in there with me into the home, that she would be uh, really upset and would blame it on him. So she opened the door. She said, you have five minutes, and that's it. And I presented to her in about 45 minutes. She said, I'll go. And I said, you will? And she said, yeah, I'll go. And I said, tonight, on Sunday night? And she said, well, don't talk me out of it. And uh, she did go into treatment, and... Uh, she did, uh, has since ran the Los Angeles Marathon a few times, but the bottom line is is that I did leave there not in any way, um, you know, understanding what I did, but I did have this thought. If you speak from your heart to another heart, it can be received in a kind, loving way. And I honestly believe with all the the things that you think about going into an intervention, it's really a heart-to-heart approach. Going in front of someone in a kind way with a group of people presenting in the most receivable way that we have a solution. And if you are going to have a tragedy in a week, a few weeks, or six months down the line, we will give you a way out starting today. If you take it, wonderful. I'm happy for you. If you don't, at least we did our best. So this first intervention, that just it became clear to you that this heart-to-heart approach, which is also the title of a book that you've written, and, and we'll mention that a little later. But So did you have a preconceived idea of that, or when you were in that room, did you realize that that was... Did it just come to you, or? Oh no! I think it took me maybe 150 cases after that, thinking, okay. uh, you know, that just maybe um, that if I walk into homes, uh, that I need more people. See, what happened was I would do these kind of on my own, and right. as I would go on my own, I would realize uh, the denial, the minimization the sincere delusion the person was in. And I found out that, well, if I could have one, two, three people there, I could look at them and say, well, what do you think? I mean, do you think he should go in today? And, of course, they would say, absolutely. Now, if I asked the patient client, they'd go, well, I'd like to peruse the material and see where I go with this. But You know, um, the Johnson model of intervening was around at that time, and I didn't know exactly what that was all about, but I did 
at times when I was at Long Beach Memorial Medical Center, uh, run the projector, 16-millimeter projector, and that would be the the uh, movie I'll Quit Tomorrow by Vern, by Vern Johnson, and it, and it had an intervention in it. And uh, they would go in and present, here's what we'll do if you don't go, and these are the consequences. Uh, and I tried at some level to stay within that kind of concept of, well, if you don't go, here's where your family's at. But it didn't fit my personality. And what I found out after a lot of interventions, for me to do what I was doing, I'd have to go in gift-oriented. We're going to give you a gift, and it's not going to be uh, defined by leverage, that we will give you this moment, if you will, a rebirth in your life. And that's what worked for me. But Dr. Johnson, uh, when I did read his book, uh, I'll Quit Tomorrow, right. he, he said it beautifully that, uh, that it seemed like uh, uh, many people that you work with are incapable to make a healthy decision regarding their health. And that what might be required then would be a psychic jolt to jolt them in some way to receive the help uh, and it could be through a group of people that hopefully would do that jolt. Mm-hmm. So you found this accentuating the positive part of it was what fit your personality the best. You, you, you mentioned that you went into some of these alone at first, and then the family gets involved. Now, that's a really large dynamic, which um, I imagine took you some time to figure out how to how to handle that course as well because I know when the family's involved and people that are listening are going to have would have questions as well. Yes, I you know because yes, the family can be a whole uh, set of problems, can't it? Absolutely, and actually that's interesting you say that because uh, you know we often say that it's one thing to get inquiries uh, of people that uh, are thinking about intervening. Uh, but on the other side, there's a lot of gatekeepers in families. So on one level, they'll hear about a process that about 90% of the time can motivate someone to go get help right then and there that day. 90%! And yet one out of 10 inquiries will mature to an actual intervention because uh, there's folks that will not like what they hear or they feel the, their loved one won't like it, or they feel that they're not bad enough yet, or they'll put it on the back burner. I had a case where uh, the lady was 82 years of age, and so I said to the, uh, to the, to the family group on the, in reference to the inquiry we were doing, I said, well, when did you notice that she needed help? They said when she was 41, she needed a treatment program. And I said, well, then, if it was 40, 41 years later, well, what did you think? Did you think she was just going to make a decision? They said, yes, we figured she'd figure it out. But right now what's happening is there's no assisted living group that will accept her uh, based off her smoking as well as her drinking. So we have to do something now. Wow. This, this particular book, and I think it would be a good time for me to mention Heart to Heart, Honorable Approach to Motivational Intervention, and, and uh, the listeners can find this at your website, which is www.storymodel.com. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Right. And, and you have, do you have a phone number on there? Uh, well, you can always call at 
3973. That's 548-3973, area code 310. This book is very, very powerful, and I think it's very useful for families and individuals to read. Um, uh, Just the information, there's a lot of personal stories in there. You can also find uh, information on Ed's seminars and presentations and trainings. Um, All that would be at your at your website. And uh, again, we're talking to Ed Storty and uh, enjoying his conversation very much. And this is one hour at a time, and we'll be back in a minute. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. I'm your guest host, John McAndrew. We have been talking this hour with Ed Storty, who is the author of The Storty Model and uh, has taught interventions and done over 4,000 of them. That's probably a round number. And, Ed, we've been talking about your first interventions, the, the progress that you've made, the things that you have learned that have been effective. And I think, you know, to the listeners... One question would be that I would ask you is how do we choose an interventionist and what are the you know the ups and the downs to uh, to picking the proper one and how do we do that? I think it's a great question. It's one you know I, even when people call me I'll, I'll present gee whiz why don't you call a few other interventionists and get other opinions but I think it's, uh, you know, one way that you certainly can, uh, you know, lean towards uh, uh, gaining an intervention interventionist would be uh, self-referral. Sometimes uh, friends or family will say, this person helped me, you know, years ago or just, you know, a month ago, and you might call that individual. So that's one way. I think the other is, um, you know, it's one thing to call a treatment program see who they might recommend. Usually, they will recommend two, three intervention specialists. And um, 
Uh, in fact, even in my, in, in my book there, uh, Heart to Heart, I, I, I think there's a little portion there of when you're picking an interventionist, how you might go about it. But as I look at it, it would be, uh, you know, does that person uh, convey a message of hope? of professionalism. I've had people call me and uh, present to me complaints about interventionists and their rudeness over the phone or their kindness and presenting Uh they were wonderful. And and that person, I just wanted to make sure uh, what you thought of them or whatever. So they do a checkup. Uh, I think it's very appropriate to ask for an interventionist, can you give me two, three names of people you have intervened that would openly just talk about what happened for them, not so much their last name, but that I could call them to check on your methodology. And the other would be, is what type of model of intervention do you use? I mean, some interventionists are a little more heavy-handed, and they go in with an error that uh, you put a lot on the line. Either you go get treatment today or we're cutting you off tonight. That's one way some interventionists would go into it. Uh, The Johnson model actually... I don't know if that if it was actually um, uh, supposed to happen, but it just did with interventionists that would would uh, have letters written of here's what you've done and here's what we will do if you don't go. So it would be difficult because it could be going well during the intervention, but then it would be said, and if you don't go today, you're out of the home right now, and it could cause a lot of issues, or we won't speak to you again, and it would cause a lot of problems, and uh, there are some interventionists that still do uh, certain models. It's not so much the Johnson model, because I think it's really been redefined over years, Uh Uh, but this can happen that they're heavy-handed, or with some models such as the systemic model. The systemic model is one that really works with the family for uh, a couple of days. And the family's brought in, and then the patient or the intervenee is invited into the, uh, uh, into the arena, and the family presents what they're willing to do and what is that individual going to do and what's recommended. So it's more of an invitational. The model that I've had over the years has been one we walk in, we present, and it's packaged as a gift to go immediately with family then hopefully getting their help alongside. But uh, again, uh, you know, that interventionist should be one that you feel confident in uh, and that you feel good with as far as in style, in manners, and the way they come across. If that doesn't occur, uh, then you, you call others. And uh, that's, you know, now you can do that based off the Internet and checking on people as well as what they have done prior and what they will do uh, in taking your case. Mm-hmm. And the family... Generally, uh, this is probably a general statement, but they're in some state of crisis at this point. Uh, They really want help. They really want direction. Um, And it's tough to reach out for help and to try to figure out what the right thing to do is when you're in that state of mind, isn't it? How does an intervention help the family, uh, I guess, calm down and try to look... Because it is really, I mean, you know, not to dramatize it, but it's it's a life and death situation many times. 
Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And they are an absolute stress themselves. How do you approach the family at that time? Well, you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think it's uh, imperative. I mean, uh, my style has been there will be an inquiry call that comes in. So there's something about that inquiry that might lean towards the next step. And sometimes in that inquiry, I present to the person calling, uh, you know, your case is so volatile that an intervention, I, I don't see it happening. You can call someone else for another opinion. But when someone says, let's just take an example, that he's threatening and he's violent and he will go after people, well, in my opinion, that is not a good candidate for an intervention. So I would be the first to present, I'm concerned for you, and here's what you might do for you for your safety. But, you know, another thing is uh, from an inquiry, it can go to an assessment. That can be done by phone or in person or, you know, mutual way. I mean, somewhere where you meet. But uh, that can be done with a few people that would be of a foundation of a group. And that is to evaluate doability, approachability, and risk factors of intervening. Now, some interventionists will take a case from the inquiry. They just move. They'll go, okay, I'll come out and prepare it. But there, there can be a step, which I have utilized over the years, is I'm going to assess it. And I'm going to evaluate it because there's something of due diligence that needs to be done for family members to present risk factors. What are some, right. of, the, what are some of the risks? Well, one risk certainly can be uh, disappointment. If that loved one doesn't go into treatment the day of the intervention, it's disappointing. And I don't know how to say it any differently than it's disappointing. All interventions are, are successful. All are successful. There's no doubt in my mind. But the, the family has been through such pain, ups and downs and speed bumps, that they're looking for immediate relief. And can they handle the disappointment that the person won't go that day? Can they handle it? And that's something to be talked out. They'll go, oh, you mean you don't handcuff them? <laughs> you know? Right. So we're not a SWAT team, you know? Uh, the other, of course, is that the person can walk out of the intervention, just walk out, bolt out of the room, and it's disappointing, you know? Uh, the person can go into the treatment center and walk out very disappointing. Uh, the individual can go to treatment and the outcome is wonderful during treatment and use a drug day one when they come out. Uh, and these are things that are talked out as well as um, can you stay unified? You know, you don't intervene and then you go four steps backwards on, I hope you're okay with this. I'm sorry that we had to do it this way. An intervention is a statement that we believe that there's a tragedy around the corner. And before it occurs, we will give you your moment. So I see it as a living eulogy to eulogize the person and to stay positive because we believe that something's going to happen, and to be proud of that moment. The addictive person can work one person against the other, and now you've got problems. You have one person saying, well, she wanted me to be here, he wanted me to be here, and pretty soon it's just it's one that it's, it's on and on, and that's what's discussed really in the assessment. Can you go through it? Do you want to go through with it? And also, John, a key point here, we could talk about this a little later if you choose, but finding the right treatment program, that's a big deal. 
I mean, yeah. you know, an interventionist puts their signature on uh, the treatment center, and uh, you've got to have the right center that allows for dignity and is intervention-friendly. Right. When you talked about the assessment, and I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the moment when uh, you walk in the door the day of the intervention, and I'm, I, I guess I kind of know the answer to this question, but... You know, today we talk about dual diagnosis. We talk about co-occurring disorders. And has it ever happened that you've done an assessment, you've done your due diligence the best that you can? Uh, People in this field know that sometimes families are not the best uh, indicators of true medical or psychological or even alcohol and drug use information. Uh, You do the best that you can. But, you know, these days with dual diagnosis and mental health issues, those are definitely have to be risks if you're not aware of them and then they appear the day you go. And how do you deal with, I guess the question is, uh, surprises or things you hadn't planned for? I'm sure you, you know, have had to do that in the past. Yeah, well, it happens, and, you know, through time and age, you just ask questions of what might be that primary diagnosis, but there have been times I've been involved in cases, and you'll pick up this is much more psychiatric in nature, Mm -hmm. or um, you will go in for a, a marijuana user and family deeply concerned but the primary issue, as you're working with the person you pick up, there's a tremendous amount of anger and rage in that individual, and they're looking for medication to keep that down. Because once they uh, subside from the use of the drug, their anger and rage is prominent. It really comes out. Uh-huh. And uh, that's where you need a facility that can, that can really work with that individual or dissect what are the demons. Sometimes through neural testing, neural psych testing that some of the centers do, they pick it apart immediately. Right. Um, you know, and that's the, the, you know, that's, you know, you work with the, the, the best way you can. Uh, on one level, you're working with the addiction, and on the other, uh, you know, families will slightly allude to uh, the sexual issues going on, uh, the, the issues of uh, many partners, pornography, things of that nature, and as you look into it, you'll be thinking, you know, I think the primary diagnosis is the sexual addiction, not so much the using of the drug, but it all has to be covered. Uh, You know, anorexia, look at what we have to, bulimia, all these things, and yet they'll come to you saying the cocaine is the problem. So these things have to be looked at with centers that are really challenged to do a lot of work today in dissecting what is coming first and what can we work with. Yeah. Thank you. This is one hour at a time. We've been talking with Ed Storty, the author of Heart to Heart and also the author of the Storty Model of Intervention. And when we come back, I think Ed will talk a little bit about how to find uh, the right and the best treatment center, uh, which is what we're all trying to do. We'll be right back.
Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. I'm your guest host, John McAndrew. We have been talking this hour with Ed Storty and uh, really a remarkable story from the being a longshoreman in Long Beach in the early 70s and uh, finding his way through the path of field of recovery and, uh, and intervention. And Ed has developed his, it's called the Storty Model of Motivational Intervention and uh, We've been talking about a lot of subjects and uh, the pros and cons of interventionists and, and, and finding a good one. And I think the good question now, Ed, would be how do we help those people that, that you go to to find the proper treatment center? You mentioned in the last segment many issues can come up, and uh, we all know that there are really good treatment centers that are better at some things than others. And uh Finding that, you know, it's like trying to find a, a shoe that fits, and it's not always an easy thing, but I think experience will kind of let you know where to send people. So how do you work at that part of the process? Well, good point. Uh, boy, that's where we're challenged. You know, when people call me, uh, it's one thing about intervention, the fees around that. I mean, it's always uh, uh, it's always one that you, you have to, you know... Um, uh, do the due diligence around all of that stuff, but then you have to talk treatment centers generically, and that's a whole other subject. Uh, but, you know, things I look for uh, would be, obviously, the budget uh, family has. Some people will say money is not a problem. Others will go. We were hoping state aid would uh, would uh, take care of it. On the other side, um, uh, you know, uh, so many times we look for gender-specific Women with women, men with men. Uh, Serenity Lodge up in Lake Arrowhead has a wonderful program for men only. And uh, there's a uh, wonderful man by the name of K.C. Homer um, that does work up there with the men that they just do well. I mean, they just do terrific, and it's it's a it's a, a, a very uh, a very fair price range. In fact, even below fair. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. very reasonable. On the other, you know, you have Newfound Life in Long Beach that men and women, and yet they're they gender 
gender specific because they separate them, and it's a it's a husband and wife. Uh, Ed and Marianne Spatola do a great job. So I mean, these are facilities that you lean towards. Uh, the possibilities. Uh, on the other, sometimes it's one for uh, high testing, and you just figure out that they'll need testing like uh, Altamira in Sausalito that does a lot of testing uh, and works with the individual, uh, uh, you know, a lot of personalization there. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's just, it's one that as you're picking it apart, looking at the case, how can you get the person there? How can they be, how can the travel, will the travel be okay for the individual due to, are they ambulatory? Can they get around, um, you know, Cirque Lodge is, uh, the lodge itself in, in uh, Salt, in, in, I should say in uh, Utah, in Sundance, that's at about 7,200 feet. So if you're working with someone and they present, uh, gee, there's, uh, uh, they have breathing problems, uh, well, you question, can you, take them up 7,200 feet, you know, in right. that area. So that's the stuff you have to look at as well as for family participation. It's one thing to uh, be thinking of the uh, intervening, uh, but it's the other for family to participate and, you know, go to a, like a Betty Ford Center where they have a wonderful family program, five days there, and a wonderful children's program. That is their signature. And so these are things we look for. Right. And and the model of treatment today has changed from 1975. Of course, everything has changed from 1975. But we used to think, well, we'll send them away for 30 days uh, to a pretty place that has a palm tree and they have to go on a jet, you know, <laughs> and then they'll come back home. And uh, I know that there are many treatment centers that have, there's different words for extended care, you know, long, longer-term treatment. Uh, can you explain how some of those facilities differ? I know Newfound Life has extended uh, care for the men and the women, and they can stay there for long periods of time be, and become integrated into the community. I know that this is a tremendous uh, plus for families, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know... Um you're you're just you're right on mark. I mean, today I mean I I don't I'm not even sure if there's a program around that's strictly you know three weeks. Remember, I mean my year my era of time. By the way, when I was seeking help, it was 14 days. That was wow. big time. 14 days, and I was just scared to death to even think of that. Uh, but but again, uh, now it's at a point of minimum minimally. 30 days they start, and then from there, most people are two, three months in treatment now. And you're, you're right with uh, the extended treatment means everything. Uh, and so in actually in intervening, with the way it's presented, at least the way I present it, is it's a minimum stay of one month, then the staff will take a look at what is going on with you, and they can invite you to stay longer, to see where it goes. And I love that part of invite. Uh, we used to say, you know, it's a 90-day program, and people would just freak out in the intervention end of it. But uh, one lady, she was an older lady, God bless her, and I said, and they can invite you to possibly stay longer. And she looked up at me, and she said, oh, my, I hope I get invited. 
so cute. But uh, we really need more time in the sense of once you have cleared for about 30 days, now you have to really take a look at the demons, the issues, and the behavior. Right. Ed, in your your book, Heart to Heart, and uh, it's a beautiful book, and I admit that I have it. And uh, (laughs) the... We've talked a lot about the process, and we've talked a lot about the pros and cons and risks and all those things. But in our remaining time, you know, might you share just a couple of stories? Because um, what you have done, Ed, is help to save individuals' lives, and then the families' lives change. It's an incredible process, and uh, we talk about the difficulties on the front end a lot. Uh, it's good for us to talk about the victories and and the honor and, uh, you know, the gratitude that comes out from the result of doing the work and making these decisions. You know, that moment of an intervention is like an earthquake yes. and beautiful things. You know, families rise from that, from that dust. And uh, could you share a couple of the stories? Uh, from your book with us in the last couple of minutes here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's always amazing, boy, to be a part of the miracles. I mean, I'm, I'm to this day stunned. I was in, an, a, um, in a group a while back, and a gentleman was, um, he was receiving a, uh, if you will, uh, recognition for 28 years of being clean and sober. And he looked at the group, and I was there, and he said, Can you believe, Ed? was in my home 28 years ago, and he had to talk me into saving my life. And he started to cry. He said he had to talk me into saving my life. He said, that's how squirrely my thinking was at that time. And, you know, John, I'm amazed at how many people make it. I don't think we talk enough about that. Uh, I was involved in an intervention uh, where we started the process, and the lady said, well, can I write my letter? Excuse me, read my letter. And I said, mm-hmm. read your letter? And that was the person we're intervening on. And I said, oh, uh, well, please hold back. And I said, we have a few others that would like to say something. She said, no, I'd like to read my letter. I was thinking, what is she talking about? I said, this is a loaded area for me to go into. I said, go ahead and read your letter. And she reads her letter, and she says something like this. Thank you all for being here. I've been waiting for this to occur. Um, I am so sorry that you had to do this. I will do my very best. I can't promise you total abstinence for the rest of my life, but I'll do it a day at a time, and uh, I hope I didn't embarrass any of you by being here. And she ends with, thank you. And I'm thinking, she had this letter written for I don't know how long, thinking someday she'd be intervened upon. And when she was intervened upon, she had it on her. So, I mean, point being is that uh, uh, so many people uh, have uh, made it today through the intervention process, that they didn't go to a level of just total physical, neurological, spiritual deterioration, that they were intervened upon at a higher level. And I've had cases where, uh, you know, you walk in. I remember, in fact, a man that um, seven ex-wives were present for his intervention. (laughs) The eighth wife intervened. And what was kind of funny in the preparation, she said, well, if he doesn't go, I'm just going to tell him that we can't be married. And I looked at her thinking, seven ex-wives. 
uh, down the line. I don't think that's going to mean a hoot to this guy. No, but anyway, they in were, the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, they were all there, seven ex-wives. They didn't like each other, and we uh, intervened. And he cried throughout the to- throughout the intervention. And uh, he said he would go. He said it was needed. And he said, honestly, it's what broke up all the other marriages. Now, after the intervention, and he was about ready to go, all of them cleared out because they didn't like each other. Uh, but, you know, it was an amazing thing that took, took place. There was a homicide detective in Los Angeles. We walked in with 32 people. Oh, wow. 32 walked in. And he said, is this my retirement party? I said, no, (laughs) no, it's better than that. And it was great. I mean, he just thanked everyone, immediately went to treatment. And uh, these things occur because, you know, John, I'll tell you, at a funeral, people will be there saying, you know, he was a great guy, sweetheart. If I would have known it was going to get to this level, I wish I would have said something. Well, intervening uh-huh. is that thing to say something. It's the group to make a statement. We collectively care, and we will give you a way out. Thank you so much. Hey, we've been talking to Ed Storty. Uh, his website is www.stortymodel.com. Uh, we have mentioned his book, Heart to Heart. Ed is also working on a new book called Disease of Appetite. And we may save that uh, for another show. Uh, the stories in the book, Heart to Heart, Ed, are so so inspiring. And we want to just kind of close on an up note that, uh, and thank you from all the families and individuals that you have helped over the years, all the people that you have taught and educated about this disease and about intervention. We all want to thank you. And thanks again, Ed Storty. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.